This was a very powerful moment. I consider this a moment in the history of herbalism in North America. We were sitting in a circle and I said, okay, how many people here want to form a school in, it, in order to keep the principles of vitalism alive in North America? And 12 people said, yes. And I said, how many people want to start a free sliding scale clinic for the underserved people in this place where they can get high quality alternative medical care for whatever they can afford? And 12 people said, yes, no hesitation. Welcome to Pacific Rim College Radio, a podcast sharing stories and wisdom from experts in the field of holistic wellness and sustainable living. I am your host, Todd Howard, coming to you from Ravenhill Herb Farm, a permaculture design campus of Pacific Rim College in Victoria, British Columbia. As the show's guests demonstrate, by doing small acts to embrace more mindful living, we can positively impact our communities. Paul Bergner has studied and practiced natural medicine, medical herbalism, and nutrition since 1973. He is the director of the North American Institute of Medical Herbalism in Portland, Oregon, and for years has served as a visiting faculty member at Pacific Rim College. His online course, Systemic Inflammation, Food Intolerance, and Autoimmunity, is the most popular standalone course at Pacific Rim College online and receives rave reviews from nearly all who take it. This episode with Paul has many unexpected turns and twists, including a look at naturalism, a harrowing battle with addictions, and many gifts that have emerged from his hero's journey of relentless surrendering. We also talk in detail about the more expected, such as Paul's courage to start a school of herbalism, founding the Medical Herbalism Journal, and the seven books that Paul has authored. Paul is a legend in the field of herbal medicine and vitalism who has inspired countless to explore their calling into natural medicines. It was an honor to sit down and connect with him, and I was humbled by his courage to share so much of his personal narrative in such intimate detail. Perhaps you have come to this episode to learn more about herbal medicine. Paul delivers on this and also offers a dose of raw vulnerability that you were likely not anticipating. I hope you enjoy this episode of Pacific Rim College Radio with herbalist Paul Bergner. Paul, welcome to Pacific Rim College Radio. Thank you. It's an honor to sit down and, and chat with you again. It's been probably a year since, maybe longer than that. When, were, when did you record your online course for Pacific Rim College Online? I think we recorded it three years ago. Wow. Okay. Time flies. Yeah. All right. So it's been a few years since I've seen you, but it's it's great to great to connect with you again. You have spent nearly fifty years in the, <laughs> yeah, it's a long time. Yeah. Nearly fifty years uh, as a pioneer in the field of natural medicine, herbal medicine, nutrition, and I'm sure we're going to talk a lot about that. But before we do, I wanted to see if you could share with us something that people might not know about you in regards to something else that inspires you or something else that you're passionate about. Okay, well, uh, I'm a naturalist, right? And this is completely separate from being an herbalist. Okay. A, a student of nature, I say completely separate, but you can't separate any of it, right? Yeah. And it does feed my healing uh, spirit. But uh, I started a program, uh, I started it in the year 2000, um, 
uh, there's a, a program in Washington State called the Wilderness Awareness School, and they have a program called the Kamana program, right? And I don't know if they still have it, right? But the assignment is they, they mentor you at a distance uh, in naturalist studies. And you think, well, how could they do that, right? And well, you find your spot, right? You find a spot in nature, right? And you've not like an area, like, oh, I like that wilderness area. No, a spot beside a tree, right? Okay. And you go to that spot, you, 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 the first lessons are how to select your spot. So, right, so you select a spot that's in a transitional area, like a forest to a meadow, right? And uh, what I actually, my spot was a forest to a shrub area to a cattail marsh this way and down that way to the edge of a beaver pond, right? And all that was in a 200-yard diameter circle, right? Mm -hmm. So you would, at the edges, you see so much about nature, you know, what moves, things are moving down to the water and back to the forest, things from the water come up to the forest and go back to the water, and so on, migratory birds on water and all that. So anyway, the here's, here's the kicker, though. You go to that spot and you put your, your butt against that tree, and you do that every day for 365 days. Oh wow! And you do it uh, before you watch the sun. Come, watch the light of dawn and the sun come up. Sometimes you, you go in at midnight. Sometimes you go in the winter when it's cold and the rain. You go in the summer when it's hot, and you go when the mosquitoes come out. Right, and you get to learn that spot. And meanwhile, you're being trained in exercises that broaden your awareness and pull the veils away from your 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 perceptions, right? Until you can see, right? And you can see the patterns. And you're, you're doing your study inside this 200-yard diameter circle. And then, of course, you're learning all the area around there also because you're going and coming and all that. But um, I, I did that for 12 years, right? Wow. The first year I did it, I went and sat beside that tree 365 days out of the year, except 11. I only missed 11 days. Um, out, out of the thing. And uh, I have to say the you know the you you know the one I the one eyed uh, the one eyed uh, man is is king in, in the land of the blind, right? <laughs> and mm. you become I when you sit and you pull the veils of nature away, you become like the one eyed person and the people around you cannot see what you see. It's like it's invisible. They they can't see the track on the ground, right? They they don't notice the rose bush that they walk past every day. I I don't know how to how to go deeper into this, but as you go deeper into that path of one place, deeper into nature, and then you get bored. Oh, I'm bored. Oh, this is boring. I got to leave. No, no, no. I've committed to sit for twenty minutes, right? And then in the in the eighteenth minute, the coyote walks past. You know, <laughs> and, uh, wow. <laughs> and doesn't even take time to hide. It just kind of yeah. past, right? And then and then you do that. You do that. They say, you know, if you do that for a week, the you'll, the animal, the shy, the less shy animals will start to stop leaving. They'll just be around. And then if you do it for a month, right, uh, the more shy animals will let themselves be seen. If you do it for three months, the animals stop hiding from you. Right? Really? And you can see things that that nobody else sees, right? Because nobody else has gone and sat there. You know, you sit there for three years. In three years, there was a deer herd there. 
And every one of them had been born while I was sitting there every day. And they all knew me by sight and smell and scent. And I could walk with them as if I was herding. And uh, I mean, I knew, I learned their etiquette, like they keep a certain distance from each other and that and everything, but I could just hang out with the deer. The, the, had all kinds of interactions with, with coyotes. And I just saw, saw so many things, partly from the veils of perception going away, but partly by becoming part of that place, by being a constant presence there, yeah. that the nature responds to you differently. And wow. uh, this was a very, I did this in my midlife, uh, this is, I did, this was uh, very challenging. It, it's very hard. I've, I've tried to inspire different students to do that. And nobody can make it. Nobody I've, I've tried to get to do it could make it past a, past a week or two. <laughs> start getting bored. Oh, I have all this stuff I have to do. I can't. Blah, 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 blah. And then but to do it, you have to sit there and go, okay, I'm, I'm going to stop doing it. And they call it like a wall. It's the wall of boredom. Yeah. Sit there and then... Uh, you're something more and more boy. Oh my God. Look, wow. I never saw that bush before. And I've been sitting next to it for two months. Right? And uh, like each one of those little walls you go through, you go through the wall of mosquitoes, the wall of fear of the dark, right? The, uh, and uh, so the, uh, there are other exercises to enhance your senses, but also to make you part of the area, like how you move and you walk. So you don't alarm animals and things like that. So, uh, mm. I, I did that. I did that practice at that school for twelve years. Wow! Now, in the early years, I did it way. I did it five days a week in the early years, and uh, later it wasn't so common. But that spot is like more familiar to me than my living room. Hmm. Uh, the whole natural area around there. Yeah. I'm curious about what the tree was that you sat beside. The tree was a uh, an invasive willow called a crack willow because the area where i spot where i where i sat had been the site of a homestead you know 100 120 years ago and they had planted these willows to try to get some shade right it's on the on the the the, the short grass prairie of, of colorado or, or in on the prairie of colorado next to the, to the mountain range and um they had i uh, planted these willows and uh the they call them crack willows because they look exactly like a species of willow called a peach leaf willow and you can't tell looking at them you have to key them you have to take a little twig and break it from the branch and if it makes a cracking sound it's a crack willow instead of a peach leaf willow <laughs> so this was the tree in the area where i was sitting it was uh it was wasted those trees were not native there and those trees, you know, willows are kind of soft and, and not too not too sturdy, you know. And so there are really high winds in Boulder, so they planted them. So there's this forest of invasive crack willows where two-thirds of them have been blown down or have branches blown off. But but they're continuing to grow, right? The vital force is coming through them. Even though the, the trunk is down, the branches still have green on them and they're still having a way to grow like that. And so it's this... That was the tree. That was the tree. I, mean, I sat against. I, I sat against it because of its position, and and where it was, I could sit. I was in plain sight, but I could sit there, and people could walk by on the trail, and nobody ever saw me. Right. And uh, what yeah. did you learn from the tree? <laughs> from the tree. Well, you were there for twelve years. I, I presume you learned something. 
Yeah, well, I, I learned that trees have a lot more patience than people do. <laughs> <laughs> and what drew you to choose this particular location? Well, one of the, uh, the principles my mentors taught me was it has to be within 15 minutes of your back door, right? And, uh, or else you won't go, right? So yeah. It'll be the end of the day. So uh, it, was a, it was about 15 minutes from my school where I taught. Um, and it was actually a perfect exercise because sometimes I would lecture six hours a day, three days in a row sometimes, and then do clinic mentoring the next day, right? And it, that is such a burnout routine. And I was single at the time. So I could just walk over there, right, and get my exercise in, right, and then sit there and recover from all that output <laughs> I was giving to these, these, these classes of 40, 30 or 40 people. And, um, and sit there and recover and just come back to base, come back to ground base, just come back to myself, sit there myself in nature and... Uh, Get my body totally calm, and then could get up, and then could just walk around that natural area and, and, and see lots of things, and be refreshed and revitalized uh, uh, from that. So I, I selected it for closeness, but also it was uh, near my post office when I first moved to to uh, Boulder. I uh, I, uh, I was looking for a place to occasionally walk in nature, right, and so. It was near my post office, so I'd drive over to my post office and pull over there and wander around that, the pond and, and the forest there a little bit. And I, I do that once every two or three weeks, right? Or, you know, once a month. But I had done that for, I had been doing that for five years um, in that place already. So I, I picked a place over there because well, I could combine a trip over there with a trip to my post office and, and so on. Um, you might people might immediately say, "Well, you're going to study nature. Oh, you should go to some perfect, pristine place out in the wilderness area." I there are thousands and thousands of people who have done this program. Uh, one woman did it from her balcony in Manhattan, hmm. right? Yeah. And uh, uh, I I did it. Uh, my, I said I, I did it. I, I only missed 11 days that first year. I had been doing it for 43 days without missing, right? And I had to, I took a trip to Mexico City to give a lecture there, and I was I was thinking oh I'm gonna wait for my spot there's nothing here you know and so uh, my my room I was staying with friends but my room was a, a, a top floor apartment and you could go out on the roof and so I'm in the middle of Mexico City going out on the roof and I'm just walking and I look over the edge and I'm on the the third third floor there's three floors and then the roof. I'm looking down and I'm seeing the pigeons on the ground and the other birds and the people walking by and watching and the bird behavior there in the middle of Mexico City was identical to the bird behavior in my spot. Right? <laughs> and I understood the language of the birds, their emotions, their movements, because I had come to understand them in one place. And then I could see them in other places too. And um I should tell a story, a woman, I saw her, her write up on this, that she lived in, a, in Canada and she didn't say which city, but it was one of the Eastern, uh, you know, major cities uh, of Canada. And 
she did this exercise in her backyard in a high crime area right and she had a fenced in backyard so she could sit there and she watched nature in her backyard uh, and she said by the end of six weeks they had shut down the drug trade in her neighborhood right? because she was sitting there so she's listening to all the rhythms and she's missing and everything and she's listening to which houses the cars are pulling up to and then leaving and pulling up to and leaving so then she calls the police <laughs> and she said they were dealing drugs over there and by the end of six weeks they had busted all the drug dealers in her neighborhood <laughs> because she was hearing the patterns and the rhythms right but the she also was studying the bird behavior right and of course there are birds in the city and there were jays in her backyard and um the uh at, at one point after a couple of months she injured herself and had a cast on her leg and couldn't come out for a while and her name was mary and the jays came to her back door and called her name mary mary <laughs> like that because she wasn't coming out and she and then she went to this this whole page of writing about the behavior of the ants under her porch she had just from look you pull the veils away and you can see these miracles happening everywhere and finally ultimately at the end she could tell what the weather would be in the afternoon from the bird behavior in the morning wow and uh, this is in a city yeah so uh this this taught me uh, an incredible thing about healing and about vitalism right and and where does the vitality live right and nature is everywhere nature's vitality is everywhere it's here the person can the forces of nature are entirely present right here in our bodies the seasons are here right in our bodies the force that brings spring back every year is right here in our body and we want to arrange our therapeutics in order to allow that to manifest right it's our intellect isn't going to help somebody recover from a devastating illness you know but nature will do it if you set the conditions right you know and so yeah. so this um, this idea and it also helped me with with nature this idea well i have to go somewhere you know it's as if like nature was like a first nations people that they put out on a reservation like nature's out there somewhere not not nature's at, in the ants under my back porch in the jays in my backyard right or in my own heart in my yeah backyard, you know so what came first for you was it the interest in naturalism or the interest in holistic medicines and herbalism and nutrition well i i um you know i re i realized i reviewed my life i was fated to become a healer i was fated to become the person who would train healers how to be healers right and uh, I, I realize now some of the, uh, some of what I learned. My, I was born in a medical family. My father was a doctor, right? And so there's a lot of stuff you hear from the, from the doctors that you don't, uh, in a medical family, that you wouldn't hear otherwise. Like he'd come home from the hospital and he'd say, oh, oh that doctor, he's really a great doctor. And he said, man, that other guy, he's awful. That guy's just awful. Don't let, ever let anybody get near that doctor. And, I realized that the medical field had its own self-critique and its own rumor mill inside about who was good and who was bad and everything. So I started out with my father's perspective on not a blind adopting, 
of, of, of conventional medicine, that uh, there was uh, good and bad in that and, and harm in there. And the, uh, he, I remember him, uh, the, he, he was the old generation that didn't just rely on lab tests. He said, all these young doctors, they're sending out for lab tests, they're treating numbers, you know? And so I was, I was trained in that when I was young. And during the, during the uh, uh, 70s, I, I was, uh, was uh, going to be drafted uh, into the Army and sent to Vietnam. And, uh, but I uh, acquired conscientious objector status, and uh, they uh, allowed me. I did a couple of, I did work as an ambulance driver for a time. But then I spent two years in a cancer ward in a hospital wheeling patients back and forth from radiation therapy, right? taking them off their bed, <laughs> holding them in my arms, putting them on the stretcher, helping them in their wheelchair, taking them in, taking them back. Um, and so uh, 40 hours a week for two years, I was in the milieu of people dying of cancer and right? very, very sick with cancer. Um, at the time, I hated it. I didn't see where that would fit in the pattern of my life, right? But I realized that this, this was the beginning of my training to be able to sit spiritually and centered across a desk from somebody, no matter how sick they were, <laughs> whether they were in the last day of their life, I could sit with them and talk to them with equanimity. And uh, that has allowed me to work with uh, seriously ill patients, you know, later on. And I could hold my spiritual self. Uh, also, at the time I was... Uh, by the time I finished that, I was sort of at the end of a 10-year alcoholic career. I was a very, very serious uh, alcoholic. I had, blackout, had blackouts and, and, uh, and uh, had signs of advanced alcoholism coming at about age, age 25. And uh, I, I went by, through... I, I went by, through age 20, by age 25, you were 10 years in? Yes. Wow. Yeah. No. I have a... You know, I'll just say, I have, uh, uh, <laughs> anybody who's ever heard my life story, I never heard anybody who wanted to trade my life story for their life story. <laughs> yeah. I have, a, I have a, my, my life is, is like the table of contents in a textbook on post-traumatic stress disorder. I have a man in many kinds of abuse, um, is severely traumatized uh, in, in about five different ways. And... Of course, then the alcoholism is there. That's not why. But so I I understand now, and I came to understand later on. I, you asked me why? Why did this happen to me? You see, why did that happen to me? Right? And yeah. You say um, that happened to me. Now I can say, at age fifty, I was leading a roundtable of clinical students, right? And we were at the end of their term. And I'd mentored each of their cases in the teaching clinic <laughs> over the previous eight months, right? And they were getting ready to graduate. And I led them in an exercise. I said, well, you guys are about ready to graduate. Why don't we, well, let's sit here. Let's sit here and meditate together and just ask internally for a vision or an image or an impression of, of your calling for the future, what to do with this, this stuff you have you know, the learning you had. And um, it, this, uh, I asked them and, and they, and it, it really worked. Uh, one person, uh, you know, said, oh, I, I, I had an image of four, four drawer file cabinets full of patient files, right? 
And uh, I have to say, three years later, that woman sent me a picture of her first four-door file cabinet. She'd become a professional acupuncturist. Right? <laughs> uh, another woman, her image was of a backyard with a picket fence and three blonde-haired kids in it. You know, she was blonde. So, you know, where uh, you're getting, so each person had something, right? And yeah, maybe you see it, maybe you don't. But the one rascal says, well, what did you see, Paul? Right? And I realized that what I had seen was I sat there and was doing that. And I saw myself in that room leading those people in that exercise. And I realized for the first time in my life, I was in my vision instead of seeking my vision. Hmm. This was tremendously powerful experience, right? Yeah. And uh, And so I contemplated that. Oh, for the next months, for months after that, I contemplated that. And I kind of unraveled the threads. And what I saw was that because of the regenerative processes in my life, that each and every single trauma that I had experienced had become processed and had become a healing power. Right? Yeah. It had been engaged and processed and become a healing power. And that I could, through inspiration, evoke that in patients, but also transmit some of that to my students. I don't it's know incredible. if this sounds too woo-woo, but uh, no, well, this was my thing. And I, I will say, I was at age 25, I had a, a spiritual mentor in a, a, a long, ancient, esoteric tradition, and he said, your daily prayer is what is my calling what am yeah. i called to do what is my calling right and then you want you want to see it and then you want to have the strength to follow it and not let fear keep you from from following it and but i had done that as a daily prayer from age 25 to age 50 and each time it would see the calling would be Oh, well, you know, the calling isn't like a name tag or a job title, you know. <laughs> calling is you're called to a certain stretch of life experience, you know. I'd go over here and, oh, oh, I, 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 I'm following my calling, but I just went through a bankruptcy, you know. <laughs> That's awful, you know. Or, and then I went through a divorce, right. And then, you know, you have, and then good stuff happened, right. I, I had all kinds of, a, a naturopathic medical education landed in my lap. I got to trade marketing consulting for uh, for tuition for naturopathic medical education just like a gift in my lap and i said well should i do that yeah do that right that's my guidance to do that so uh what i realized that doing that i was guided this way and that way and i was doing that daily and there was never a time during that time when i wasn't under guidance right and that i was led to this experience and that experience and that experience and during the whole time I'm engaged in spiritual practice, meditation, prayer, you know, of, of different, I just say on spiritual paths, I'm a serial monogamist, right? Like <laughs> I, did, I did a very intense meditation and yoga for a time, right? And then I yeah. did, did Gnostic Christianity for a period, right? And then a traditional uh, Islamic Sufism for a period, right? And, and but I, I never, I don't wear those hats. Those were just things I was guided, you can follow this path for a while, right? But, but you're yourself, you're not that path, right? And, uh, but so it was the right thing at the right time each time. And it was through that kind of work, 
humbling myself, right, and devoting myself to uh, care. And I can I can tell you exactly how I recovered from alcoholism. Right? Please do. And, uh, this is back at age twenty five, right? And uh, I'm at the end of that hospital work, and uh, I've uh, been on a binge, uh, alcohol binge, for a long time, and I ran out of money. And had spent two days alone in my room, and I didn't have money for alcohol. And actually, the last day, I didn't have any money for food because I'd spent all my money on alcohol <laughs> on the last binge. And uh, but I was in my room, and I, I was studying. I'd always thrown myself into spiritual study, so I was studying and things. But I was uh, suicidal, and I, I went into an, an alternate altered state. And I went to this state. I felt like I was still and still, and I could see my see my whole life behind me. And I looked, and I said, "My gosh, every single thing I tried to do, I failed at. Right? I, I, you know, my my relationships failed. I couldn't finish college. I did all this, you know, one failure after another after another. And this thing came up out of my heart. <laughs> I said, you know, out of my heart, and I, I, I had always prayed, prayed. I always had had prayer, and I just said, said, uh, let me not kill myself. Let me die to myself, and spend the rest of my life for the glory of God and the good of humanity. And uh, this was like, uh, I don't usually talk about this on podcasts, uh, but I'm telling you, the room filled up with angels. Right, wow. my, the veils of my perception were very thin because I was on the edge of going into delirium tremens. Right, yeah. but uh, the uh, I could see what was there in the spiritual world, and it was like, whoosh, these there were these uh, spiritual beings in the room, and one of them uh, looked at me and says, "We don't hear a prayer like that very often," and wow. it's like if you had you were getting ready to move your household right you might have the moving van people might come in and start moving your furniture around right yeah and it was like it was like these beings were rearranging the furniture in me they were rearranging things in my character somehow right they were like <laughs> doing this and and then it passed away and but i i felt from that that time on I felt like I was living in another dimension and that I could see my guidance as clearly as you can look at the sky and see the sun. That's incredible. That feeling. And two weeks later, the desire for alcohol went away and I've never been drunk since. Right? And, um, and what a journey. I got the answer to that prayer. Yeah. Because, uh, that's what, you know, so what is the root? You, you mentioned this stuff I, I've done in natural healing and natural health and I've done in some other areas and, it, it's simply because I would follow, follow that sun. I could follow the guidance. I could, I could detect it and find it. Yeah. So you've taken all that life has presented to you, the good and the bad, and it seems you've turned it into lessons for personal growth and then service to others. Yeah. And I like to say, I haven't done it. I was guided to do it. I said, why did I, you know, I had tried to quit drinking for eight of the 10 years right yeah and especially the last year before that i resolved not to drink one day and then go binge for 10 days right and uh, that's what alcoholism is right and i said why did that happen then i said well it isn't any credit to me <laughs> my book is i think the great spirit pressed a button mm -hmm. you know that it, it came it was because this was my destiny 
and to do it. And maybe I'm telling this, I haven't told the story publicly very often, but maybe I'm telling the story publicly, maybe this will benefit somebody. Well, know? it seems to me you were conscious enough to know when to go with the spirit as opposed to resist what you were feeling. And that's, that's huge. And to say that you didn't do anything, I, I think that doing that alone is absolutely significant and it's it's what has allowed you to be open to all these experiences and to transform yeah and then uh, so then gradually step by step my my character developed i was led through a path that really helped me develop my character like really that really developed myself honesty that's one spiritual path each day you get have I told lies today? Did I withhold information I should have told yeah. someone today? Did I, you know, and do this? I, I spent 10 years doing that. And so you, you kind of sort of clean up your character and the, the uh, and then, uh, then uh, you develop by doing daily practice uh, under guidance, you develop a will, you develop willpower, right? And you develop the ability to make an intention and then follow through on it. And it does that. And that's very, very important. Yeah, piece of accomplishing what what you're called to do is you need to have enough uh, willpower and intention to be able to fulfill it. Mm -hmm. Now, many of the recovering addicts who I've spoken with have have talked about the the lessons and that they wouldn't. Many of them said, "I wouldn't change that. I wouldn't change that phase of my right. life." What lessons <laughs> did alcoholism bring to you? Well, I can tell you, as I, I, I really went through this, this recovery, I became, for a while, like, with alcohol poisoning, I mean, you become very sensitive to the other side. And people with delirium tremens who see scary things, they're actually seeing what's in their spiritual environment, right, which is, is usually pretty bad. And um, so, uh, but I was sensitized. And so I actually, some of these angels, right, uh, they continued to guide me and like coach me for a period of time. It's like the doors were open, right? And uh, they uh, guided me in, uh, in that way. And I, um, I asked, I was at one point, I was just completely spiritually recovered from from that whole uh, ordeal of the addiction. And I, uh, I said, why, why did I go through this? Why did I go through this back time? And they told me, they said, just simple one-liner. He says, if you want to uh, guide and help other people, you need to walk in their shoes before you do that. And uh, many recovering alcoholics have found that out. Right? Mm -hmm. But I can tell you what I learned, my recovery was, I uh, very immediately uh, came under the, the training and the influence of of a nature cure, right? Uh, a traditional nature cure. And I was trained in a system that combined daily meditation with daily yoga postures, right? And, but with a whole foods diet, regular daily exercise, hydrotherapy with hot and cold water, and uh, some other methods, and basically fasting during fever, uh, periodic short fasts, right, for detox. And um, it was a, kind of an integrated package, and uh, it just resurrected me physically, right? And so this, and uh, so I, I'd been doing that for seven or eight months, and uh, 
people started asking me to teach them how to do that. And I started teaching classes in medical self-care. And I taught people that system. Uh, and uh, th it's an important part of my uh, understanding of healing today because this was drugless. This was herbless, right? <laughs> this was yeah. just rearranging the deck chairs, right? <laughs> yeah. rearranging, uh, rearranging the inputs, the diet, the activity, right? The rest, but also the moral intention, right? The intention, the spirit intention to be, to, to uh, unfold your spirit, right? As part of the whole package. So over a period of about six or seven years, I taught that to more than 800 people. And, but the, you asked for the uh, insight into the, the alcoholism, uh, you know, the, the, they, they said you have to walk the shoes before you would guide somebody. I mainly taught them to recovering drug addicts and alcoholics right? yep. for seven years, right? They were the people who came to the classes. And it was interesting. I would get kind of recovering alcoholics and drug addicts and kind of new age people, right? Yeah. And the recovering alcoholics and addicts, they all took right to it, right? But most of the new age people, they couldn't persist with it, wow. right? Because the, I mean, maybe you have to be drowning before you really passionately hold on to a life preserver, you know. And uh, uh, the other piece of it was, I I took um, I took that and I taught that system in prisons and jails for seven years. Um, and uh, there's one me medium security prison near Louisville, Kentucky, right where I grew up. I taught it there every two weeks, maybe for four or five, four years, I think. And uh, had uh, uh, and then uh, I became kind of famous as an alternative prison educator, so I would be invited. I, I taught that prison that in Marion, Illinois, maximum security federal prison in uh, Southern Illinois, in Leavenworth, and Butner Prison in North Carolina, and uh, and uh, taught that. But what I I learned from that well, well first of all, I I had walked the path, so I could I could talk to criminals right because if i had been caught for what i did i would have been in prison you know i <laughs> uh the uh drug dealing you know so some you know just there but for fortune but anyway uh, i i remember a thing that i came up with that i would talk to the prisoners about i said well you know the difference between a hardened criminal and a hardened saint i said is the process is the same right you're you're <laughs> you you're, you're tempted to do something criminal, right? And your conscience goes, oh, I better not do that. But you ignore your conscience, right? And then you go do that. And then, then you have a peer group who tells you to ignore your conscience, right? And then you go, yeah, there you go. Then pretty soon you stop hearing your conscience. Now you're a hardened criminal. It says, well, you can become a hardened saint. It's just the other way. You know, the voice that says, now nah, you don't want to meditate today. You know, you ignore that and you do it, right? And you surround yourself with other people on the spiritual path who encourage you to do that. And then you become a hardened saint. It's the same process. <laughs> and so that always got a tremendous laugh, but it's also tremendously true. Yeah. Right? It's yeah. The, there are many little decisions on the spiritual path that this little thing, this little thing, and then pretty soon it becomes a habit. And then pretty soon that voice doesn't tell you not, not to do it. Anymore. Yeah. Your journey reminds me uh, of Michael Singer. Are you familiar with, with mm. Michael Singer? He's, a, he's an author and he has a meditation center in Florida. 
but in one of his books called The Surrender Experiment is what yeah. you've explained with your life, which is just giving in to the force of the spirit and the force of nature and whatever opportunity that comes along, no matter how much you think it does not fit in your current paradigm, mm-hmm. he, he was open to it and it led him down this glorious journey. And ultimately, uh, well, there are many beautiful things, but one of the things that he ended up doing was teaching meditation in prisons for I think uh, nearly nearly two decades. Wow! And it was something that he brought that gift of spiritual awareness and consciousness into the prisons. That's an incredible story. What for you? What led you to do work in the prison systems? Uh, I was teaching these classes. And somebody asked if I teach it at the prison. I don't remember who asked. She just did it at the prison. Yeah. And, uh, these are the things when you're on your path, things can happen by miracle. And I said, well, I, I don't have a car. I, I would have to drive out there. You know, it was a 40-minute drive out to the prison. And, uh, I haven't got any way to do it. And so somebody gave us a car. <laughs> <laughs> somebody gave us a car so I could yeah. do the, the prison teaching. You know? And what sort of impact did you see that you were having and your teachings were having? Yeah. Well, I can know some individuals. Um, uh, uh, It was just just absolutely amazing. Uh, Remarkable transformation in some of the people. Um, One man, he's an African-American man, basically in there, he and another guy had pulled a little petty scam on somebody like... uh, they had uh, had said that um, uh, supposedly there was a prostitute waiting in this hotel room and they gave the person the key and then they ran away with the money and there was nobody waiting. Right? right. So the guy came back to his buddy and started to beat him up. So his buddy killed him. Oh, wow. So they put this guy in prison, even though he wasn't anywhere near there, because he'd been part of the original scam. Right. So that made him part of the original felony or whatever it was. So yeah. now that was considered me. The other guy, meanwhile, had got a short sentence and, and was released. And this guy was still in prison for seven years. Right? Hmm. And he, uh, he, uh, he took to this man, that guy, his eyes, his eyes sparkled like diamonds, you know. And uh, toward the, the end of uh, his time, the thing, somebody re-adjudicated his case and he got out. He got to walk. Wow. And I asked him, uh, how was it? And he said, you know... That stuff happened. It was really, really bad, and all that stuff happened that, and I still know it was really, really bad, and it was unfair. But now I can say that with love. <laughs> wow! And, and one more guy. Let me tell his yeah. story. He he uh, he was a, a juvenile delinquent in and out of juvenile delinquent school. He'd been a criminal since he was twelve years old, right? And he was in his uh, he was he was like twenty eight years old. He was in his Second stint in a, in a, in a state prison, and uh, he really took to it. He got really, you know, he he really became adept at, at the practices. I will say, you know, this wasn't just meditation. This was diet also. These guys would trade with other prisoners. They say, "I'll give you my pie for your vegetables." Mm-hmm. <laughs> you think people say, "Oh, I can't really do all this. I don't have the resources." People are doing this in prison, you know, for yeah. that, but. He, um, uh, he had come to my class, and uh, I was doing an exit interview. He was getting out of, of prison. And I said, well, what was your frame of mind when you came 
to my to my class. And he said, well, I had just gotten out of the hole because he had been loan sharking on the yard. So in other words, he was a criminal who's doing crimes in the prison. Yeah. Put in the prison within the prison for the people who are doing crimes in the prison. And he got out. I said, what was your state of mind before you came to the class? He got out that day and came wow. to the class. And he said, well, I had resolved to change my ways, right? That I would plan my jobs better next time. <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> this guy's story, he, he got out and he got out and he was trained as a printer uh, while he was in prison. So he got a job in a print shop. And the foreman in the print shop was abusing him, right? And uh, treating him really badly, right? And the, he, he had endured that for eight or nine months. And the owner saw what was going on and fired the supervisor in the print shop and gave him the supervisor's job. And he ended up marrying the owner's daughter. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and this was the guy who was planning to, you know, he had developed his character, right? Yeah. Just from sitting, sitting each day, you can develop character in that way. And um, so, <laughs> anyway. Um, uh, yeah, okay. It's incredible. One of my friends, uh, Fritzy Horseman, she's a, a film producer, and she started the Compassion Prison Project in California and she's producing a series of films about her work but she as with you was an addict uh felt that she herself oh. could have been imprisoned and felt lucky not to be and she goes into prisons and she helps the the convicts and maximum security prisons deal with their post-traumatic stress disorders by helping with trauma-informed care and helping them become more conscious and helping them to to heal through uh, accountability and forgiveness and reconciliation and it's amazing work and i know it's a long long build up to this but i'm wondering that with your post-traumatic well with your your childhood stresses and then your as you said you you Basically, they could write a textbook on post-traumatic stress disorder with what you'd suffered from. Was that a tool, that those experiences, that they become tools to help you in the prison system to work with these, these people? Not intentionally or not consciously. I, I didn't become aware of my trauma background until somewhat later, actually. Okay. There, uh, I... Uh, uh, so anyway, there's one, the one I'd like to, to segue a little bit here. When this, this, so this, I spent this time, my own recovery, and these people, you know, I would see people go from uh, sick to healthy, right? By healthy, I mean living at a higher level of vitality that they hadn't imagined was possible. And yeah. they're, they're doing this because of, mental spiritual exercises diet simple things like that and so i developed by witnessing so many people go through various stages of different kinds of recovery from that i developed a faith in vitalism i developed faith in the healing power of nature and i developed the knowledge of the kinds of things you need to rearrange <laughs> in order for that nature to start to manifest as healing uh, in a person. And by healing, not I like to say healing is not coming back to your former baseline. <laughs> healing is going forward. Healing is evolving. You're becoming a new being. You're becoming a new being at a different level 
of organization, a vital organization, right? And yeah. so, so I this is informs my practice and what I teach today as an herbalist. I'm famous as an herbalist, right? Yeah. But it was seven years before I started systematically giving people herbs, right? Right. <laughs> before I even started studying herbs, right? So, uh, uh, I I uh, in the '80s I attended a naturopathic college, and this is at the time when the some of the naturopathic old timers were there, the gray haired elders, mm-hmm. <laughs> ones who had done time in jail in the fifties for practicing medicine without a license. Right, and then right. they came back like hardened criminals to do it again. Right. right? And that's, that's why we have that tradition today because of the, those people who did that. And those, they had tremendous experience and faith in the healing power of nature. Right. And, uh, but one uh, mentor, the man's name, my mentor and a colleague, his name is Wade Boyle. He wasn't an old doctor. He was a young doctor, but he, he was my age. But he, um, he uh, just, just rocked my world when uh, I was just becoming an herbalist. And I mean, I, I'd been an herbalist for about 10 years by that point, but I was studying naturopathic medicine. But he gave a talk and he said, herbalism, being an herbalist just means you use herbs. He said, in his term, he said, being a naturopathic herbalism means you use herbs in support of nature cure. Right? And you go, so uh, somebody could be using herbs like antibiotics to suppress every symptom that comes along. Yeah. Right? Or somebody could be using herbs to support the digestion so this nice new diet <laughs> you're eating can be transformed, right? Rather than going after symptoms, right? Go after supporting processes. Yes. Right? And so... Uh, we want to support the processes of rest. We want to support the processes of digestion and transforma- biotransformation of the food into the stuff of the body and all of that. So uh, that paradigm, this fit with all these herbs. Uh, I, I, had, I, I was, uh, let's see, 73, five years in, I moved to Taos, New Mexico. I got a job in a food co-op and they made me run the herb department in the co-op because nobody else wanted to do it. So suddenly I was in a situation, I knew all the stuff about nature cure, where I had to learn how to buy and sell good quality and learn the uses of 50 herbs, right? Yeah. And uh, so uh, to do that, I got, I, I got, you wouldn't believe this, in 1978, there were exactly seven books in print in North America <laughs> on herbalism. Well, that, ma- I, that matches or, the number of books you've authored. I ordered all seven books and had them as a little library in the area. <laughs> and then I started studying herbalism. And then people started asking me to help them. I said, well, try this out. And da, 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 da. And so I started getting some hands-on learning. But because of my knowledge and faith of the recovery that can happen by addressing the fundamentals, right, I never made the mistake of expecting the herbs to take the place of the fundamentals. Hmm. So uh, this is the... This is this we call this vitalist herbalism is the, and so this is this is what I teach and the, so this idea of lifestyle first, diet and lifestyle first, and for some years I thought the herbs would not be necessary, and then I thought well the herbs maybe they could help but now I understand maybe you might actually need the herb to help improve the person's digestion, uh, while they're in the process of eliminating a food allergy, right? Yeah. The herb might be a critical catalytic piece in there so but so that's uh anyway th- this is what i teach this is uh, right. what i teach in, in every venue and every format is uh, 
So one of the things I love most about podcasting is I never know where the where the conversations are going to go. And this has been such a fun journey with so many surprises around every corner. Mm-hmm. You've just spoke, you've given a, I think a, a broader view of vitalism, which I think a lot of our listeners might not be familiar with. Are you able to give a, a succinct definition of what vitalism is? Well, uh, the, the term the, the ancient Greeks used, and they got this from the Egyptians and the Mesopotamians before them, is to rely on the healing power of nature. Okay. The healing power of nature, right? That the, the force comes from nature with a capital M. And you know the, 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 the vital force is like a, a drawn bow. It wants to make you thrive, right? It wants to make you thrive on all levels, not just your body, right? But, but to find your calling, your emotional health, right? And your spiritual inspiration. That's all part of uh, the life force. And uh, so... Uh, uh, vital, vitalism is uh, the foundation of it is to setting the conditions of life in the order that allow that to manifest. Right? And okay. I, I, some people, let's say, talk about vitalism and they talk the vital force and they talk about the vital force as if it's this light floating off somewhere, right? Something hovering above the crown of your head or something, right? And uh, it's the ethereal, the, the theory ethereal side of life the vital force right and so some people in homeopathy field said well you don't don't worry about diet and this other stuff take this sugar pill which will enable the vital force and the vital force will come into the body and throw things off and have a healing crisis and then you'll be better right uh the uh i like to say that's sort of like the airy view of what life is in the vital force right but the, to really understand vitalism, you have to understand a farmer, right? And what the farmer does is the farmer does some work, work, right? Prepares the soil. Whatever your philosophy of gardening, there's some preparation of soil, improve the quality of the soil. Plant the seed, pull the weeds, make sure the water's there. You're doing some work, right? And once you've done that work, the healing power of nature, the power of nature, will transform those seeds and those plants to bear fruit. Do that. But you've done some work to set the conditions so that nature can manifest the growth and the output of that garden. You've done some work. Right? So yeah. this is the same idea. The work you have to do, this is vitalism. This is the earth level of vitalism, right? Instead of the sky level of vitalism, right? Mm-hmm. Is that uh, if you don't do the garden, you don't do the work in the garden, you're not going to get any fruit, right? Yeah. <laughs> you're not going to do it. It's not going to happen. So the idea of the vital force being an idea or a thought or a feeling or something, no. The vital force is, is, is what will manifest if you've done the work to set the correct conditions for it. Right. And so that this is this is self care. This is medical self care. I used to sell my classes as medical self care. This is of course in medical spiritual self care. Right. And so, but you have to do the work. Right. So, and and then life can transform. So in that we are tending to the internal terrain, i.e., our bodies, ourselves, our spirits, so that we then are 
more readily influenced by the healing power of nature is that yeah the if correct? like you know if you set the garden right the healing power of nature will make it grow that's why it grows because of nature natural forces yeah so it it uh it's it's just that's the extent of what we call nature's laws right a lot of times people start talking about nature's laws and, and their particular little brand cult <laughs> the set of rules and regulations and they say well you're violating nature's laws no nature's laws is uh you have to nourish the system uh for the vital force to express you have to have all the building blocks right mm -hmm. you can't manifest normal muscle function if you're magnesium deficient you have to have the nature would love to have you have normal non-spasmodic muscles but if you don't have magnesium present in sufficient amounts the muscles will get stiff and crampy right? yeah and nature can't do anything about that until you give it <laughs> until you give it magnesium you know? right so how did you go from becoming a uh, working in a health food store in taos new mexico and studying seven books to becoming the inspiration and a leader that you have been in the field of herbal medicine and to go on and yourself write it's been seven books hasn't it uh yeah it has yeah, yeah. how did that transformation come about well i love the there's a saying somebody made the statement that 80 percent of success is just showing up um and i just i just kept showing up right day by day a little bit at a time right drip 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 uh kept on my path kept reading, kept studying, kept learning, met a new teacher. Um, I moved to Portland, Oregon, went to the Naturopathic College. The herbal teacher there is Cascade Anderson Geller. Uh, and she's, she's the only, I have, every herbalist has taught me something, but she's the only herbalist I call teacher with a capital T for me because she just absolutely, totally taught me the main themes of my own practice of herbalism and introduced me to... A, a, a very a sane, functional way to use herbs, not too polluted by materialistic science. Right? Um, she and uh, so a teacher, and she brought that out. And then I have to say a watershed moment in 1989. I started. Um, uh, uh, by the way, I in 1989, you're praying for your calling every day. You say, "What's my calling? I want to do my work. I want to do my work. What's my work?" What's my work? What should I do? And then at some point you have an idea. Well, I think this is it. And then you, yeah, I really do think that's it. Okay, am I ready to say this is it and put myself all in? Right? And the, the question is, like, uh, you watch the poker games on TV, the Texas Hold'em poker, right? And everybody's sitting around and people with dark glasses on and <laughs> down over their eyes and all that. But at one point somebody has this big monster pile of chips in front of them and they go, they push it all in the middle and they say, I'm all in. And yeah. then they sit and they're going, y -y -y -y, you know, what's going to happen? And then it comes <laughs> out and maybe they win. Well, this is, this is on the path to do something great for future generations. And yet at some point you have to accurately discover what your calling is. And then at some point there's a trend, there's a quantum point where you have to put yourself all in. You say, I'm going to do this, whether richer or poorer, <laughs> right for better or worse i'm going to do this and uh, so uh that was in eight, 1989 and i wrote out what i was going to do 
And uh, it's a really simple one-liner. I, I want to leave herbalism in North America in better shape when I leave than it was when I found it. You still have that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I put myself all into that. Mm-hmm. And the first thing I did was uh, start a journal, the Medical Herbalism Journal. And, and I have to say, you're doing a journal, your job. So my job was to have other authors, and then I wrote articles, and I put case studies in there, and st- other people's case studies. With every quarterly issue, I got smarter, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's a certain, in a certain, in a career, you can reach a turning point in your career where you become better at it every single day because you're learning something every single day and better at it. So I, um, published that journal. I learned a lot publishing that journal. And yeah. that was a, a, a threshold event. And then, uh, my own practice uh, was not that busy at that time. Right. That I had some exposure at the clinic at the naturopathic college and I would help people, but it was more family and friends and things, but I, I knew a lot. But so then in 1995, um, a, there's a school, in, I had moved to Boulder, and there's a school, the Colorado, um, uh, the uh, Rocky Mountain Center for Botanical Studies, and um, they were just starting a clinical program, and they had a weekly roundtable, and they invited uh, people to other faculty, I was on the faculty, they invited the faculty, you can come sit in this case review roundtable if you'd like, and I'm going, cases? Like, actual cases, like real <laughs> grounded experience, no more, this is good for that, and this is good for that, you know, actual cases where you get to see whether it worked or not, right? And right. Uh, I was greedy for that, I was hungry for that. <laughs> and I actually went to those roundtables for like six months, right, just as guest faculty, right? And then, uh, then there were some changes in the administration and they asked me to run it, run wow. it myself. And so I've basically been running a clinical roundtable for a teaching clinic. I still do it. Really? 1996. Wow. <laughs> and That's crazy. the I still reviewed cases in 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 a roundtable. Uh, uh, it was first at that school, and then that school went out of business. I started my school. I did exactly the same thing in our clinical program, and then I sold my school in Colorado. And the Colorado School of Clinical Herbalism now runs that same clinical program teaching clinic with a weekly round table and yeah. I still review every single case that comes through their clinic. They do. Really? And so see, look at this, this, I see I'm the luckiest herbalist in all of North America, right? Because I've been able to review actual cases, right? Yeah. Anywhere between 150 and 300 a year. Wow. Since 1996 continuously. And in addition I get to see the development of those clinicians. Like they get mm-hmm. in and they're feeling insecure, right? And then you'll see this threshold where suddenly they develop confidence, you know, and you, you start to see, I know you see this at, in your clinic at, at Pacific Rim, you know, the, they, you see the evolution of the yes. uh, person's confidence, their ability to where at some point we'll see, we'll see it, we'll go, bing, okay, that one got it, right? Right. <laughs> right? And then they're, they're fine, they're done, right? Yeah. And so they're, they're on their way out. So, but so I've been doing that continue. This is uh, that, that that's uh, 24 years. Yeah. I've been doing that. Yeah. Uh, we uh, add up pr- at 400, 400 students. I've mentored them through teaching clinic. But the most important thing is I got to learn from all their cases. Of course. Most of yeah. us get to learn from their own cases. 
But if they know how to learn from their own cases, because that's not always a done deal, right? <laughs> there's, a, there's a joke that this one comedian said, well, I've been doing stand-up for 20 years, right? And one of his rivals said, no, no, no. He only did stand up for one year, and then he repeated that year for twenty years. <laughs> and uh, we, this happens in the medical field. It happens in Asian medicine. It happens in all fields. That people yeah. just get this little routine. They practice by rote, and whether it works or not, they just keep practicing by rote. No know, expansion. And, yeah, um, you're the you're the second guest who I've interviewed who started a journal to advance their education. The other was Peter Dedman, who founded the Journal of Chinese Medicine. Wow. And very similar to what you just said, he started it because there were very few English resources of Chinese medicine at the time. Wow. But he's carried on that journal, and he learns so much through the experience of doing it. How did that, and I asked him the same thing, like, how does that, that seed even germinate in someone to start a journal? I know where it came from. Yeah, uh, I came out of the health food industry. Like I was studying healing and practicing healing and all this stuff, but I needed to make a living, right? So it was this and that, but it was always an allied field. Like I, I helped run a vegetarian restaurant. I helped run a vegetarian bakery. I, I ran a natural foods grocery. I did organizing for food co-ops. Uh, uh, business. I ran a natural food grocery. In, you should uh, you should meet Peter Dedman if you haven't, because every single one of those things you just said, he did the same things. You know, I did all that. I actually did, did uh, um, marketing to, to help troubled uh, food co-ops uh, get back on their feet and help uh, struggling health food stores to get back on their feet. Wow. So it was a little middle short career. Then I, was, uh, 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 I started working for the naturopathic profession and I did marketing, recruiting marketing for the naturopathic college where I was going to school. Mm -hmm. And I traded that for tuition, right? Yeah. And so, you know, I have to say 10 years later when I started my own school, I was glad that I had experience doing educational marketing. <laughs> it was preparing for the future, you know. Right. So the journal you asked about. Yeah. In the natural food at that, that back at that time in the in the 1980s, there were two kinds of publications, right? That you could get um about uh health foods, right? And one would be stuff from the medical pharmaceutical industry talking what a scam it was. Yeah. And the other were magazines put out by the large health food companies. Right. And their job was not to educate you. Their job was to sell their stuff, right? So they're, they're riddled with lies, right? They're just yeah. riddled with spin, right? It's all propaganda. And at that time, this emerged. The guy's one of my heroes. <laughs> now I've forgotten his name. His last name was Green. But this guy started a magazine called Natural Food Merchandiser, right? And this was a, a trade magazine, but it was for the health food store owner. Mm -hmm. It wasn't for the Hain canned vegetable company, right? right? It was for. So it says, this is how to build an end cap display, right? This is how to set up your produce so it looks nice, right? And here are some special offers you can get where you can get stuff cheaper and make better profit on it. And, and he also started a conference, right? A, a trade show. And now at the time, the only trade show there was in the health food stuff happened in the summer in June and July, and it was sponsored by these companies. And there's always a slump in health food store sales in the summer, 
right? So they had these conferences, this trade show, so that they could sell their stuff, they could sell their dead inventory at a discount to the health food store owners. And then the health food store owners would sit on the dead inventory until fall, right? The trade show was in their interest, right? So this guy started a trade show the month before peak health food business season. So here he is, he, and, and you know, I, I had this store, you could go to the store and they say, oh my gosh, you can get a whole pallet of this particular food product, you know, at 50% at off, right? You can sell it to your customers at 30% off and still make 20% more, you know? So yep. the, he, he set up the publication and the trade show in the interest of the health food store owner. And what I served in the, in the herbal field, the, all there was was geeky scientific information that wasn't clinically relevant, Critical in 1989, critical information, that's all toxic, blah, 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 all like that. Or natural products industry propaganda, trying to sell you the latest next lottery winner, million dollar uh, seller like that. And there was no information for the clinician. You asked my inspiration, that was my inspiration. I want to do for the herbal medicine what Doug Green did for the natural foods industry. <laughs> is I want to empower the clinician. I want, to, I want information about side effects, right? The companies won't talk about side effects. It'll impair their sales. And the clinician needs to know about them, right? And so Naturally, yeah. that, that, was, that was my motivation, right? And I said, I want to do for them what Doug Green did for the natural food. Yeah. Thing. yeah. I, I don't often get a chance to talk with someone who, someone else who has started a college can you tell me a bit about the, I think you've started multiple schools, haven't you? Can you tell me a bit about those and that, that experience? Well, uh, you know, really, I, I, there was a school in Boulder, the Rocky Mountain Center for Botanical Studies. Yeah. And, um, I, uh, uh, I taught there. It was a, re a really nice school. It was an eclectic school. They had an eclectic faculty. They had a lot of guest faculty. I said they're regular faculty, but they'd bring in famous herbalists from around the country to teach classes and around the world even. And uh, then they, they eventually developed a, a, a clinical program, which I helped them set up the clinical program. And, and uh, we started a, a expanded, I start, expanded the curriculum for preclinical training, right? Mm -hmm. and, uh, and then I su supervised that. And I started doing that in 1996, 97. But then that school uh, suddenly went out of business in 2003. And by suddenly, I mean, we were called into the office and said, I'm sorry to say, but you already got the last month paycheck you're ever going to get from our school. We're bankrupt and we're closing our door in 10 days. Wow. And uh, that was just very sudden. It was like a lightning strike. And yeah. So I, um, I had this, this preclinical program was 10 days away from finishing their program and getting my certificate. Hmm. So um, I said, well, you know, whether I'm paid or not, I don't have the heart to leave these people hanging. <laughs> and, uh, so I finished up the last 10 days of teaching for them so they could get their certificates, right? Yeah. And, uh, and then bang, the school was gone. And um, I, uh, but those guys graduated and they all said, Paul, we want to do clinic. We want to do clinic. We want clinical training. We prepared for this. We want clinical training. And uh, 
So uh, we started having classes in one of their living rooms because by now I needed to make a living. Yep. I didn't have any income, right? <laughs> Zip. I was like, I don't remember exactly, 52 years old with no income, uh, 55 years old with, with no income, no job, right? And so yep. I said, well, I have to teach some classes. So the, 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 edu the educational regulators in Colorado called me on the phone and says, you have to stop teaching those classes in that living room right now or we'll give you a legal cease and desist order. Why? Well, they regulate, they regulate occupational education. Yeah. So I was doing occupational education and I, I wasn't a registered school. Wow. The bureaucrats got me. So this was really looked like the abyss uh, in front of there. And, um, but I said, I kept every day, what's my calling? What's my calling? Right? And it goes on and on. And, uh, this, I think you like what you hear. So I, I explored, I said, well, what would I need to do to become a school? It says, well, I'd need a $5,000 security deposit and I need to do a lot of paperwork and I need to have a, at least a two year lease on a space. And I need to go and I say, and I just lost my job and I'm unemployed. <laughs> I'm mm -hmm. technically bankrupt. Right. And so, and I'm supposed to try to start the school and I go, I don't know, what should I do? Anyway, it's my guy and what's my calling? And so um, we had a, there were 12 of the students and we came and, and was circa, I was desperate. I was beyond the end of my rope. I was, I was sunk in the abyss. And, uh, but this was the, the guidance to try this. And so I say, okay, guys, um, the, um, this is, they knew the situation. This is the situation. This is exactly what I would need to do uh, in order to, to continue your education. Uh, I scouted out a place. I had a place where I could get a lease. It would have been suitable for a school. It's good. And um, I says, but I need $20,000 to do it. Right? And so I, I asked them, I said, see, these guys, they had already planned to attend this other school. So they already had their tuition ready for right. the other school. So I approached them and I just said, and this was a very powerful moment. And this, I consider this a moment in the history of herbalism in North America was uh, we were sitting in a circle and I said, okay, how many people here want to form a school in, in order to keep the principles of vitalism alive in North America? And 12 people said, yes. Hmm. <laughs> and I said, how many people want to start uh, a free sliding scale clinic for the underserved people in this place where they can get high quality alternative medical care for whatever they can afford, right? And 12 people said, yes, no hesitation, right? These are the intentions, right? Yes, about founding a school. Yeah. <laughs> founding yes. School. And uh, so then I'm, I said, well, how many of you are willing to give me half your tuition up front so that I can make this thing real? There's a little pause, a little more pause. And 12 people said, yes. Wow. The rest is history. Those three yeses, are how I founded a school. Mm. Incredible. Being guided to do it. Yeah. And, and you see, I'd like to say one thing. You know, I've talked about, I've got to review my students' cases, right? And that these students do that. I am so eternally grateful to every single one of my students, right? Because they took the step to, to enter into clinical practice, right? They, they produced the outcomes. They produced the follow-ups that I got to study, right? And this is, I'll tell you, this, this is maybe 400 people we've trained through there. 
at least 385 of them have been women, right? <laughs> and I am just eternally, these women, have they taken the step, they threw themselves all into it, the challenges, they pulled together the money that they could, they did whatever they could to do it, they put themselves in, they themselves have been transformed into healers, but I got to learn from all their cases, right? I got vicarious learning because they put themselves all in, you know? And the yeah. same with these 12 people that said yes, right? This same kind of and Paul Burns is kind of a famous herbalist. I wish those twelve people were as famous because they they did that with their intention and with their love and with their commitment, you know, to what was real and what was good in that. So anyway. Incredible journey. Yeah. You mentioned at least one person who inspired you, I believe it's Cascade Anderson mm -hmm. Geller. Mm -hmm. Who have been some of your other key inspirations? Uh, okay, uh, let me think. Well, um, I mentioned the man Wade Boyle. Yep. Uh, Wade was, uh, oh man, what an amazing man. Everybody's heard of the eclectics today, you know, the eclectic medical doctors and things. Yeah. Well, this is back in the early 80s, right? And Wade was my age, but he uh, was a scholar of the eclectic herbal literature. He was also a scholar of the nature cure literature. Right, and today, well, I don't know exactly, but he and another man wrote a textbook on naturopathic hydrotherapy, which, at least until the past three or four years, was the standard textbook on naturopathic hydrotherapy ever since it was published, right in 1992, right. So uh, this guy had this commitment to nature cure, very similar to my experience with nature cure, right. And also, he poured himself into this medical level herbal literature, right? And uh, which that, that, that model, it was so in sync with what I wanted to do, right? He really, uh, it really inspired me to really pour myself and I continue this study, a traditional uh, uh, literature. I studied Lamb more in the physiomedical school than the eclectic school, but the, um, there's, uh, there's, there's just, this is one of the ways we know, this is one of the ways we learn herbalism is what people did it in the past who made their living doing it. You know, yeah, had what worked for them in the past, and so he is very important. Uh, uh, Cascade, man. People say, I, other people have said this. Uh, meeting Cascade is, I, I coined the phrase, but they agreed it was like having a head on collision with your destiny. Wow, <laughs> I remember that. And uh, she had uh, she had some Native American ancestry. And I'm not doing that to claim some kind of cultural thing, but uh, you'll find in some Native American groups, their wisdom is very terse, right? It's very terse, just kind of like cutting, you know? And so yeah. I remember being in her class and saying, um, using the phrase uh, herbs and spices. And I just remember her saying, spices are herbs, and then went on with the, with the lecture. Right? <laughs> right. And it was just like being smacked up the side of the head, you know, and I go, and today I could write a 400-page textbook on spice herbalism, right? Yeah. But at the time, my thinking was was just uh, just completely naive. I, I thought I knew something about herbalism, and she goes smack like that. <laughs> and I will say the other thing I got from her was uh, uh, this woman, I, I such awe of her. She, uh, for a time, she went out near Mount Hood and uh, 
uh, near Portland, uh, and uh, she uh, uh, got a cabin out there. She was single, and she got a cabin out there, and she went and studied and, and botanized all the plants in the neighborhood. Okay, and <laughs> some years later, uh, I had her as guest faculty. We had a, a group of students at Mount Hood, and she gave us this sheet as uh, uh, the plants of Mount Hood, right? And we had all <laughs> identified in them. Uh, one of the students says. Have you seen have you seen all these plants cascade and she just quiet humble she said uh-huh and then went on and <laughs> she had Keith and found every single plant that was listed as being on Mount Hood oh. <laughs> now that's one side of herbalism the other side was she had had a supervisory clinic shift at the naturopathic college she ended up doing that for 11 years right where she was actually coaching the naturopathic students in how to give herbs for, for certain things. So she was like s such a hero to me and she was just like a goddess to me. And in class, this is what I learned from her <laughs> in class. Uh, she was talking about uh, Artemisia, sage, right? And yeah. she was talking about, you know, uh, Ludovisiana and, and Frigida and some of these small sages. And somebody said, well, what about sagebrush? What about Artemisia tridentata? And this thing just rolled right off her tongue, she says, you know, I'm a complete amateur as far as that. That's <laughs> concerned. <laughs> going, I'm gobsmacked again. I go, wow. That's it. That's the kind of herbalist I want to be. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> I want to be the person who's a complete amateur to the next piece of information that comes along. And uh, and uh, so I, I there's at least a dozen things like that with her yeah. that helped form form and and mentor me into the kind of herbalist uh, i've become uh, great stories of the seven books that you ordered and read do you remember what any of those were sure uh i oh those yes uh yes there were some books the advanced treatise on herbology by an author named shook okay and shook had a correspondence course from the 30s through the 50s, teaching herbalism to doctors, hmm. right? And it, I can't say exactly what his lineage was, but he was very much like the physiomedicalists, right? Yeah. Uh, not so much with an orthodoxy, but with the general approach. And he was very much hands-on. And um, so that was one. And the other one, Ahmad Grieve was there. Ahmad Grieve's um, Ahmad yep. Herbal. Yeah. And... Uh, there was another uh, book uh, about Eastern forest medicinal plants of the United States. And um, um, I, I, I don't remember. Yeah. But at the time, today, you can look it up on Amazon if there's a book on the topic. At the time, there was a, this thing in the United States called Books in Print, right? Okay. And it was about this thick, right? It was yeah. a big, big book this thick. And it had in it the title of every book wow. published in the United States, right? And you could look them up under topics. Yeah. So herbs or herbalism or whatever. And there were exactly seven books <laughs> in books in print in 1978 in the United States. Right? <laughs> so some other ones started coming out quickly after that. Dr. Christopher's course came out. Um, then, and, and some other ones, but uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I got to say, you... <laughs> You set about to follow your calling and to help 
leave herbalism in a better state than when you arrived. And I, and I know you haven't left herbalism yet, but you have certainly managed to do that. <laughs> you, you have been such an asset to our college. Uh, you've come, you've been a visiting faculty member for years now. Uh, you're also a faculty member on Pacific Rim College online with your course on, what is your course? It's uh, Systemic Inflammation, Food Intolerance, and Autoimmunity. Oh, there it is. All right. And what uh, what is, just a brief Cole's Notes, what is that course about, other than what the title indicates? Certain f people develop inflammation in response to the proteins in certain common foods. Okay. The most common are, are dairy. Uh, of any sort, cow, goat, sheep, right? Oh, and, uh, and glutinous grains. They're the most common. But then also egg, soy are, are common in nuts. Uh, they're less common, but, but they're there. Yep. And uh, uh, what, basically what happens, th this has been, been uh, well, let me just say, if you go back to the Hippocratic Corpus, right? Hippocratic Corpus wasn't written by Hippocrates. Uh, current scholarly opinion is Hippocrates didn't actually write anything, right? Okay. People got a library and, uh, from a school on close 200, 300 years after he, he had passed away, and they, they put his name on all of them in Alexandria, right? But uh, he, uh, he didn't actually write anything, and they were written over a period of a couple of hundred years. But one of the oldest ones in there is called On Ancient Medicine. That's the treatise. And yep. the, the, you have to imagine this is 500 BC and they're writing about ancient medicine. Right. <laughs> what, are they, what are they talking about? <laughs> they're talking about Egypt and Mesopotamia. Right? Yeah. And it's, the treatise in there, it said medicine arose. The reason medicine arose is because people observed that the diet that produced health in one person would produce disease in another. And that the quantity of food one person could tolerate would be too much for another, right? And that the goal of medicine has to be to identify and eliminate foods that cause a burden on the system, right? And to uh, find the right quantity and timing of meals that's appropriate to the nature, the timing, and the quantity of meals that's appropriate to each individual. And they're saying, this is why medicine arose, <laughs> It's that dietetics as the basis of medicine and finding the correct diet for an individual, not the correct diet for the next bestseller book. Yeah. Right? Not the one size fits all. It's how do you tailor a diet to the individual? And they mentioned the offending foods. And it says right there after their opening treatise that uh, cow's milk can cause disease in some people. And the quote is merely doubling the daily portion can trigger the onset of major illness. Really? They're talking about dairy allergy, 500 BC. Yeah. And so I'll jump forward to, I had a, a mentor, uh, a gray-haired <laughs> elder of the naturopathic profession, a Dr. Dick, a Dr. Harold Dick from Spokane, Washington. And uh, he was part of a, a, a clinic there that had been running since the 1930s, right? And uh, his mentor passed away, and then he's continued to run the clinic. But they practiced hydrotherapy, homeopathy, simple physiomedicalist herbalism to support digestion and rest. And every single patient with a chronic disease, they screened them for food intolerance. Right? 
And this was the key, was removing the offending foods, right? That was creating uh, uh, what happens when you form uh, an immunological reaction to the proteins in those foods. First, you get inflammation in the intestine, right? And then that inflammation via immune mechanisms creates systemic inflammation. It can inflame any other part of the body by reflex to what's happening at the surface of the intention of the uh, intestine. So he, this Dr. Dick would come to our school and uh, he would, it was at a time when the naturopathic profession was turning away from its traditions and toward becoming quote more scientific or what today they call green allopathy, right? And uh, yeah. he was trying to preserve some of the tradition and he would come each year and do a slideshow. The simple slideshow was before and after pictures of his cured patients. And I'm telling you, if you think of pictures worth a thousand <laughs> words, that slideshow was worth a thousand careers, man. Because really? you, you see people totally recovered from terrible diseases. And he said, this is how it's done. And I remember I was a young middle-aged man at the time, but I, I said he, he seemed to be implying that everybody had a food intolerance, right? I was very skeptical. I knew I had a food intolerance then, dairy, but I think I was I'm just sort of some kind of gastrointestinal cripple, you know, and I'm not, not normal. And uh, so I, I kind of confronted him a little bit, like snot nosed students do. And I, sa I says, Dr. Dick, do you really think like everybody has a food intolerance? Okay. And he said, he looked me straight in the eye. He says, he says, young man, if you're not willing to screen every one of your chronic disease patients, for food intolerance, identify it, coach them through an effective withdrawal, and advocate lifelong avoidance of the smallest bits of that food. You might as well find another profession. Wow. Is that strong words? Yeah. So I started doing that. <laughs> and I, we do that in all our teaching clinics. And we started doing that in all our student bodies. Right? And we see miracle cures every year. Miracle cures, people with systemic lupus, who you're always going to have that tendency, but they're not taking any meds. No steroids, no methotrexate, nothing like that. No flares, no joint pain, no nothing, right? Because they've avoided the triggers. Because they found the triggers. Now, we also work building up the, the constitution, right? Building up the terrain, building up yep. the ground. You, not just the removal, but yep. the removal, uh, I would say it's not just a trigger, it's an instigator. <laughs> no, it's really those foods. When you, you have a systemic reaction against a food protein that's creating systemic inflammation, you will never, ever be well until that protein's gone. And uh, so anyway, that's, that's what it's about. But uh, we're talking not just uh, a migraine headache, right? Uh, <laughs> just tell you stories the, the course actually tells all the stories I start out with about I think it's 25 or 26 cases of people who are cured of migraine, rheumatoid arthritis idiopathic thrombocytopenic purpura uh, there are, uh, you know, one thing after another after another uh, chronic uh, uh, people scheduled to have their colon removed because of ulcerative colitis right? Uh, uh, cervical dysplasia uh, you know, all manner of inflammatory conditions that with the identification and removal of the food intolerance, 
and it's gone. And I've never found anything since now I immersed myself in that in all our teaching clinics. All, by the time I had my own school, all our advanced students had to screen themselves for a food intolerance before I'd let them into the clinic. Hmm. Because I found that you couldn't coach somebody through a food intolerance withdrawal unless you'd done it yourself. Right, yeah. And so I'll just conclude. I never saw anything since he told me that, despite this is rather extensive experience with that now, I've never seen one thing that contraindicated either what was in that treatise on ancient medicine yeah. or, or that Dr. Dick told me. Well, about three or four years ago, I had a, a food sensitivity test done, a blood-based test, and it came back that I was allergic to eggs. And now I live on a farm and we have a couple hundred chickens and I was eating mm. six to eight eggs a day. It was just oh. free, easy food. And when I stopped eating eggs... I have a, I had a, a nasty ankle injury a while ago mm. and immediately, well, within two weeks of stopping to eat eggs, my ankle started to feel better and I started to notice other symptoms that I didn't even know were symptoms. Exactly. Go away. And I was just flabbergasted by the whole experience that all I did was take eggs, take the trigger out of my diet and I'm a very, I think I'm a very healthy person with a lot of vitality and I felt even that much better as a result of doing that. I can tell you, I and in our teaching clinic, we have heard that story 2,000 times at least. Yeah. And, uh, you know, one of, my, one of my students graduated and she said, well, Paul, what do I have to offer people? And I said, well, how are your outcomes in the clinic? She said, well, everybody got better. <laughs> Some people got better from things they didn't know they had. <laughs> I said, then you're asking me what you have to offer. That's <laughs> <laughs> oh, great. Wow. Well, I've so greatly enjoyed this conversation. It's, it's kind of hard to believe I'm sitting down with one of the most renowned herbalists in the world. And I think we've talked about two plants, crack willow and sagebush. And the rest of the time, it has not been herbal related at all. But it has been such an incredible experience for me to have this conversation with you. But it is, you see. Herbalism, historically, herbalism was never separate from dietetics. Yes. Never. Yes. It was never separate from... from it's, it's holistic. It's yeah. integrative. In yeah. uh, the Neijing, the, the Chinese yeah. early book of medicine, it says in there, once you've resorted to needles and herbs, you already failed. Right. Right? Yeah. That's... that's, that's that. Okay. So what I'm saying is no different than that. I mean, we can yeah. use, use the herbs, but... Well, in ancient China, they used to pay physicians only when the patients were healthy. Yeah. And then they would stop getting paid when some sort of disease or illness came about. Yeah. So. Well, again, it's been an amazing experience. Where can people... I, I'm hoping you come back to Pacific Rim College once the, the travel restrictions are listed and do some more workshops with us. Of course, we have your online course through Pacific Rim College Online. Where else can people learn more about you or connect with you? Well, my uh, school is the North American Institute of Medical Herbalism. Uh, the address is really easy, N-A-I-M-H, <laughs> North American Institute of Medical Herbalism, N-A-I-M-H.com. Okay, and I'll put that in the show I notes. Have, I have audio courses, uh, pretty very comprehensive educational sequence of, of certificate courses by audio courses, the way you use it, it's... I've recorded actual audio lectures 
uh, and then I kind of edit them. I take out the bad jokes, right? I leave <laughs> in the sound of the tea being poured, right? And, I, and then I, in the studio, I edit them and add some material and clean them up and do that. Yeah. So I have very comprehensive uh, courses in, in medical herbalism. People can take any one course if it's going to fill in a little niche in, mm -hmm. their, in their own practice. So you can take the comprehensive thing as a training to build up a foundation for further education and practice. Mm -hmm. And where can people buy your books, Paul? All, all my books are out of print. Okay. And the best best way to do it is uh, at Amazon.com. Okay. And just look Paul Bergner. And uh, there's, uh, three, there's three books, The Healing Power of, and it's Ginseng and the Tonic Herbs, Echinacea, Golden Seal, and the Immune Herbs, and Garlic. Okay. And... Then uh, I have a book called the, the Healing Power of Minerals and Trace Elements. And this is absolutely <laughs> the most important thing that I've written as far as understanding some of the modern chronic disease. Because of our agricultural practices, the, the foods have become devalued for their minerals and trace elements. So yeah. uh, like I documented in that book in 19... In, you know, in 1965, um, uh, you could eat a cup of broccoli and get a certain number of milligrams of calcium. And in 1997, if you ate a cup of, a cup of broccoli, you get half that amount of calcium. Mm -hmm. And then there's this whole rainbow spectrum of little trace elements. And those things are just disappeared from the diet. They practically disappeared from the diet. Yeah. Uh, they measured a group of those in a group of foods in 1948, and two-thirds of that content is gone from foods in 1997. And uh, so that, that book documents that. And then it leads into how you can uh, tailor uh, whole, not just whole foods diet, because if it's, if it's whole foods grown in mineral-rich soil, mineral-poor soil, it, it yeah. would be really good. But how to tailor a mineral-rich diet in the modern era. Uh, so, Great. Well, again, thank you for all that you've brought to our community here, to the profession of, of herbalist and nutritionist and, and just people in general. It's, you've been a great gift to all of us. So thank you for all of your work and your wisdom that you've extolled over the years. Thank you, Todd. Again, I really appreciate having this conversation and I thank you for taking the time to do it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pacific Rim College Radio with Paul Bergner. If you want to learn more about Paul and his work, visit naimh.com and check out his PRC online program on systemic inflammation, food intolerance, and autoimmunity at pacificrimcollege.online. Sign up for the newsletter and receive 15% off your first course purchase. If you are interested in studying herbal medicine, Pacific Rim College's School of Western Herbal Medicine is world-renowned and offers diploma and certificate programs. We are accepting applications for 2021. Visit pacificrimcollege.com for more. If you enjoyed this podcast, share it with your friends and family and give it a five-star rating on whatever podcast app you are using. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, welcome the unanticipated opportunities that life provides for you.